Hello everyone, Jose here, and I am delighted we have our good friend Gary Brashears, who's going to share from God's Word today. If you don't know Gary, he's been a mentor of mine and many others in the church. He's taught theology as a professor at Western Seminary for over 40 years. What I love about Gary is not only does he know the Bible super well, but he lives out the Bible and leadership in his local church. He's been an elder for more than 25 years at his church on the east side called Grace. So he's not just talking about the Bible, but he's living it out in the context of his community. So I hope that you listen in as we engage in a really important conversation on spiritual conflict. I hear people coming and talking, man, that feels like spiritual warfare to me. And I think, you know, what does that mean? But, you know, let me tell you a real story. Here a while back, a guy came to me uh, and we got to talking and he had some stuff going on in his life. And we were talking about that in, in the midst of this conversation about just ordinary stuff at work and at home and such. He said, Gary, I just find these times when I'm just there's something, it's like something comes over me and I, I just, I just want to die. What's that about? And I said, cause I've got some experience in this. I said, you know, I wonder if there's some sort of a, well, I didn't use the term with him, but in my mind, I said, I wonder if that's some sort of demonic attachment going on. I wonder if he's got a spirit of death and as I thought about that and we explored that, we discovered that was exactly the case. And what I want to do in today's sermon, but also in next week's sermon, is explore what does it mean to be spiritual warfare. And I want to do it first in a biblical theological context. That's what we'll do this week. And then next week, I want to talk about just some of the practical how-tos. And in all of this, what I'm going to do is the only information I trust is that what is in the Bible. A lot of wisdom. I mean, I've talked to a lot of different people, use a lot of different techniques, and that's fine. But the only material I'm going to trust is what God in his word says. So what I want to do this week is look at a biblical theology of spiritual warfare. So grab your Bible, uh, grab your phone, grab your device, whatever it is. We'll put some stuff up on the screen. But turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 6. It's a famous passage, of course. Ephesians chapter 6, starting at verse 12. I'm going to read it to you here. So he says here, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. See, that's really important. It's not against flesh and blood. That would be the human, human thing. But against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, against spiritual forces evil in heavenly realms. That's the demonic powers. That's it. That's what we're talking about. And what we're saying here, and this is base thing, is we are in a war against these heavenly powers, demonic powers, I'm going to call them just to be simple. And that, that war isn't something we can avoid. I mean, I'm a peace lover. Uh, I don't want to fight with anybody. But the thing of it is, the only way you can not fight is join the enemy. The only way you can not fight in this war is to join the enemy, to join Satan and his forces. And then he'll, at least for a while, leave you alone. But the outcome is not good with that. The outcome, I don't mean just going to hell, though that's true too. The outcome of that in this life is not good because the demonic powers are like drug dealers. 
at first, the stuff is great and it's free. But boy, does it not stay there. Demons never work for free. They just want your soul. So let's explore this a little bit and think what this means here to talk about this spiritual war against rulers, authorities, powers of the dark world, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. That's what we're talking about here. And so what I want to do here is let's go back to the beginning. And of course, the beginning, when we talk about that, is Genesis 1. And you see here in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, we know about that. Uh, so the heavens and the earth is, you know, this stuff. Stars, moon, earth, animals, humans come later. But what I want to suggest to you is this isn't the beginning of everything. This is the beginning of this universe, as he's talking about here. Let's look over to Genesis, to John chapter 8. This is a fun story because he is here in a, Jesus is in a conflict with the Pharisees. And I won't do your whole thing. Uh, he's, he's, uh, talks about this and he, uh, these people are criticizing him. And he said, well, we're Abraham's descendant. We never slaves anyone. How do you say we're slaves? He says, you know, you're a slave of sin. And they get in a big brouhaha. And he says, you're doing what you have heard from your father. They respond, Abraham was our father. He said, you know, if you're Abraham's children, then you do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, man of truth, truth from God. Abraham did not do such things. You're doing the works of your own father. Now he's speaking to the Pharisees here. And he, they insult him. We're not illegitimate children. Of course, referring to his birth circumstance. The only father we have is God himself. And boy, does it get joined then. If God were your father, you would love me, for I've come from God. I'm not coming on my own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you're unable to hear what I say. And then here's a key passage. This is John 8:44. You belong to your father, the devil. <whistles> Abraham is our father. God is our father. Jesus said, no, no. I know you're religious professionals. I know you do temple service all the time, but no, your father is the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. Now, here's what I want to point out. He, the devil, was a murderer from the beginning. Now think about this. He is a murderer from the beginning. And what beginning is that? Well, John 1, 1, in the beginning, the word is with God. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Same one, same one, same one. He was a murderer from the beginning. When he lies, he speaks his native language for he's liar and father of lies. So what we're saying is from the beginning, Genesis 1, that certain is already a murderer, he is already a liar. And this is what I'm suggesting to you, is that there is a heavenly conflict going on between God and Satan, the devil. Those are not names, of course, those are titles. We actually don't have the name of this angel. And I think that's a purposeful insult in scripture that we're never told the name, we're only given titles. 
and we're t he don't have his name, I and mean, God gives us his name, Yahweh, and that's a great blessing to us. But we don't get the name of the devil because what's the Bible saying? His name may ever be forgotten. He's not a good guy. He is a murderer and a liar from the beginning. Now, what that suggests to me is that that Genesis 1 1, let's go back there again. Go back to Genesis 1. Back to Genesis 1. There's the beginning. God created this universe. And there's a story that goes on. We'll skip all the details on that. But when I come down and look at that, I get down to verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so they may rule over the creatures. So here we are, image of God. That means we're close to him, we're like him, we connect to him, we make him visible, we do his work for him and with him. So he creates him in his own image. And then verse 28, and this is really crucial, it seems to me. God blessed them and said to them two commands, basically. Be fruitful and increase. So you're filling the empty garden, filling the empty land, and rule over the other creatures. So here we are from the beginning with a twofold command to create more blessable, image-bearing covenant partners who work with him to rule over the other things. He's saying create more image-bearing, blessable covenant partners who will then rule over. And when we come to that, we look toward building communities characterized by gen generosity, justice, integrity, faithfulness, love, mercy, those kinds of things. That command is there from the beginning. Now, that's not controversial. God has created image-bearing covenant partners so that we can connect with him, work with him, and create more image-bearing, blessable covenant partners who will live in community, worshiping Yahweh only, and becoming communities of generosity, justice, faithfulness, goodness, love, mercy, joy, hope, that's our commission. Now, here's the thing that's a bit controversial. I think this is in a war zone. I think that humans are created in a war zone where there's already a heavenly conflict going on between God and the devil. We get glimpses of that from time to time through scripture, but now, again, bear with me. I know this is maybe a little different, but I think this is foundational what's going on. We are created in a war zone to be blessable, image-bearing covenant partners with Yahweh, the Lord of the universe, to help him win this heavenly battle that we get pictures of from time to time. And the way we do it is to do good to overcome the chaos, the defilement, the desecration, the despair, the death that Satan and his forces bring. We are overcoming evil with good. Now we find this in the New Testament. So this is Romans chapter 12, down toward the end of the chapter. There's a whole list of things of how to live in community. And it finishes up here with, uh, don't take revenge. It's mine to re avenge, God says. On the contrary, here's what you do with enemies. 
you feed them, you give them. And then he says, don't be overcome with evil. That's to give in to the evil one. But here's the thing, overcome evil with good. See, that's the same thing. We are in a war and our primary weapon in this war is to do good. That's the primary way that we do spiritual warfare is to do good things. And if I come back into Genesis chapter one, he has created us humans to work with him in the garden, in the primordial earth by creating more image bearing covenant partners, blessable people who will create communities of generosity, justice, goodness, faithfulness, and so on. That's the great commission. That's the great commission. Look at Matthew chapter 28. Uh, I mean, you know the passage really well. He took the 11 disciples. He said to them, all authority has been given to me. That's his messianic authority. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations. What's that? Create more blessable, image-bearing covenant partners with Yahweh, baptize him in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and teach him to obey everything I've commanded. And what is he commanded to do? Create communities characterized by worship of Yahweh, generosity, justice, love, beauty, joy, hope, faithfulness. Same command, same command. That is our primary tool in what we call spiritual warfare. And our primary weapon is to do good all the way through. Now, if we're creating a war zone, and if our commandment is to do good, doing good is an act of war. Say, so, wait a minute, how can be, how can joy and hope be an act of war? Well, remember who we're fighting. We're fighting Satan, and his thing is to create chaos, his thing is to create anarchy. His thing is to be a murderer, a liar, a deceiver, one who brings defilement, desecration, despair, and death and disease. We overcome him primarily by doing good. And that's what the mission of the church is fundamentally, is to do good in a context of all the kinds of sin that we see happening in our world. Now, foundational theology, we are creating a war zone to overcome evil by doing good. And that is an act of war. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so if that's an act of war, what happens next? What happens next? Well, let's go back and look. Genesis chapter three. Uh, Genesis chapter three. Find it here in a second. There we go. Genesis chapter three. I mean, you know the story. This serpent, this nahash, more crafty than any wild animals. By the word, that term crafty there, that's the same word that shows up in Proverbs, where it's to be, it's actually a positive thing. Seek to be a craftsman. It's a good thing. So the serpent is more crafty, he's wiser than the wild animals, and he comes to the woman and he said, did God really say you must not eat from each tree of the garden? Now, what is the point of the question here? What is the point of the question? Did God like really say? What's he questioning here? What's he questioning here? 
Because see, what we're called to do is trust what Yahweh says and live on it because he's, he's like the father. He's the king. He's the, he's the, I'm just reading, rereading the Narnia Chronicles. How long has it been since you read the Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis? If it's been more than a couple of years, you might want to go back and read it again. It's absolutely amazing to see what happens when the white witch, who's a Satan figure, is already in Narnia when the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve show up. That's the same kind of story. And they enter into a war zone and their way of doing things is to do good. It's very similar to what's here. But our act of war, again, do good, create more blessable image-bearing covenant partners who will create communities in concert with Yahweh of generosity, justice. You hope you're getting tired of it, but I hope you're learning it by now. The serpent attacks back. This is the counterattack. Instead of trusting God, he said, like, did God, like, really? Really? God put that tree of knowing good and evil there in the middle of the garden? and then said, don't eat it? Like, what's that about? This is an information question. This is a, what we might call a subversive question. It's a question to undercut trust. See, that's the kind of thing that Satan does. He does it all the time. Tactics will not change. The woman says, was she correct? Meat from the trees of the garden you must not eat the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden. You must touch it or you'll die. Now, she changes things a little bit, but she gets the point. God said, don't eat it. And why? Because you'll die. Did she understand exactly what death meant? Mm, no, I probably didn't. But she knows it's not good, and she knows God wants good for us. So she gets it right. What does a certain say? You're not going to die. You're not going to die. Here's what Satan does. Here's what Satan does. He takes a story. He states a set of facts and changes the narrative. Okay, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. And before we talk about this, Genesis 2 you're free to eat a tree in the garden, but you must not eat the tree of knowledge, good and evil. Knowing good and evil means to decide for myself what's good and bad. For when you eat of it, you'll certainly die. So here's, here's God's narrative. Here's God's narrative. This tree, don't eat it. Dangerous, dangerous tree, don't eat it. It will kill you. That's God's narrative. Dangerous tree, don't eat it, it will kill you. He's protecting. There's all kinds of unanswered questions. What is that tree there for? We don't know. But it's really clear, dangerous tree, don't eat it, it will kill you. Okay, clear. What, is ser what does a serpent do? He comes along and gives a different story. Same facts, you're not gonna die. For God knows when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and it'll be like God knowing good and evil. What's he saying? This tree? Good tree, eat it, it'll make you like God. In what sense? Well, they're already like God in the image of God, but it'll make like God that you can grow up and decide for yourself. You don't have to trust anybody. Check it out for yourself. You're not sure what this God's up to. See, and that's the way the serpent works. 
dangerous tree. Don't eat it. It will kill you. God says, serpent, good tree. Eat it. It'll make you like God. Now, he's not saying, trust me. What he's saying is, don't trust anybody. Does that sound familiar? You know, here we are in COVID era, and suddenly everybody is dangerous. Don't trust people. Keep your distance. Put your mask on. Literal mask, but also a metaphoric mask. You know, don't trust people. Boy, it sounds like the serpent. That's what he does. That's what he does. Is he questions, is God a trustable person? Is this pastor a trustable person? Is this parent a trustable person? And the thing is, don't trust anybody. That's the way he does it. He is a liar. And as you see, he ends up being a murderer here too. The woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye. Now, where did she get that? Where did she get that? Well, go back to chapter 2, verse 9. God made all the trees of the tree grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Ha! Huh, there it is. Not identical in Hebrew, but it's almost. What she sees here in chapter 3 is that this is just like the other trees. There's nothing wrong with this tree. How did she come to that decision? Well, she saw. Check it out for yourself. Don't trust anybody, the serpent's hiss says. She looks and says, well, it's desirable for gaining wisdom. What's wisdom? Decide for myself what's good and bad. So she took, ate, gave some to her husband who ate it, and, oh my gosh, it just went horribly wrong from there. Horribly wrong. Horribly wrong. Liar, murderer. We see it in the counterattack. How does he do it? He does it by deception. We see other places where he does it by accusing. So Satan means accuser, devil means deceiver. That's who he is, that's who he is. What are our mission? Blessable, image-bearing covenant partners with the Lord God of the universe to create communities characterized by trust, generosity, justice, goodness, faithfulness, mercy, hope. What's the serpent's agenda? Take care of yourself. What's in it for me? I'm suspicious of your motives. Better just watch out, because I've been hurt a lot of times, and you're probably going to hurt me again. And he always builds on a nub of truth to build a lie that brings despair and death. It's spiritual warfare, deception, that leads us to get away from love God, love neighbor. Now, that's not the end of the story. I'm skipping a bunch of stuff in here, but very, very powerful. When the Lord God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you. And this is the amazing thing. 
I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, Messiah, will crush your head, triumph theme of atonement, and you will, it's the same word, crush his heel, strike his heel. So what this is saying is there's a coming Messiah who's going to crush your head, Mr. Serpent, and you'll strike him on the heel. What does it do when a serpent strikes you on the heel? Kills you. This isn't just a tap on the heel. This is a death blow by a viper. This is saying that Messiah will give up his life in order to crush the serpent. It's a promise that God is going to win this war and bring back, redeem his people. Okay, so you got this so far? <laughs> I know this is a bit dense. We're in a war, not of our choosing. We're created in a war zone to overcome evil by doing good. And our commission is, can you say it now? <laughs> Be blessable, image-bearing covenant partners working with Yahweh to build communities ruling over the rest of their universe, creating goodness, love, mercy, generosity, justice, faithfulness, all those things. The Messiah is coming to set that up. The whole Jesus story, I'm going to skip all that. And I want to go over to the book of Colossians. Uh, the book of Colossians is it's just an amazing book. Okay, So go with me to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, gosh, I love this book. Well, I love the whole book, but anyway, today it's Colossians. This moment is Colossians. You look at this, and I pick this up here, and I just want to pick up at the end of this opening paragraph, which is so full of things. Giving joyful thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Okay, I want to unpack that verse. I want to unpack that verse with you, because this is the next step in this biblical theology where we have come into the kingdom. Well, let's look at it here. There are two kingdoms here. What are they? Now, I wish you were here live so I could just, you know, hear your answer. But think about it. Look at the passage. It's here on the screen. It's in your t Bible. It's in your device. What are the two kingdoms here? What are they? Yeah, kingdom of light. That's the first one. What's the second kingdom here? I know it doesn't use the word kingdom. It uses a synonym. It uses the word dominion. You've got the kingdom of light. You've got the dominion of darkness. Okay. And here's the not good news is people begin in the dominion of darkness. Because of what happened back in the garden. We begin in the dominion of darkness, but that's not the end of the story. Look what happens here. Look what happens here. Kingdom of light. The other name of that is the kingdom of the son he loves. Okay. Now, close read. Close read, close read, close read. Who is the he? Verse 13. Who is the he? Who is the he? No, not Jesus. Sunday school answered wrong. No. Who is it? Yeah. It's the, the Father. Who's that? Well, that's the God who made heaven and earth, along with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. For the Father, 
has done what? Rescued us. Rescued us. From where? Dominion of darkness. Okay. What's the dominion of darkness? That's the authority realm of the serpent. That's the authority realm where the devils are work. That's the authority realm where murder and lies and deception and despair, desecration, defilement, death. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and, love it, brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. Okay, begin in darkness, but we don't stay there. We shouldn't have to. King of light, king of the sun he loves. And this is saying that you can go from darkness to light. You can go from the authority of Satan and demons, and you can go to the authority of the son of love, to the father of lights, to the Holy Spirit of fellowship and joy. What do you do to get there? What do you do to get there? I mean, what does it say here? Giving joy to thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the holy people and the kingdom of light. What do I have to do? What do I have to do to be rescued? Now read it closely. Because see, this is part of the true battle is we have to read the scripture really closely and see what it actually says. What do you have to do? What do you have to do to qualify for this inheritance? What do you have to do? What do I have to do? And the answer is, well, qualified, has qualified, past, present, or future, past, active or passive, if you remember your grammar, this is passive. We were rescued. By whom? By the Father. What do you have to do? And the answer is nothing, except let, except let him do it. You know the parable of the lost sheep, the, the, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes to the one. This is the picture of the Father. And what do you do if you're the lost sheep and the shepherd comes for you? What do you have to do? All you have to do is let him rescue you. But see what happens when we come out of the satanic fear, we run away from the shepherd. That's the distrust. That's the despair. What do you have to do? What do you have to do to be rescued? And the simple thing is, all you have to do is say, I don't want any more of the despair. I want out of the lies. I want to be with people where I can really trust. I want to be a God who's gracious, merciful, slow to anger, faithful, loving, forgiving, just. That's the Father. That's the Father. And if you let him rescue you, if you let him rescue you, you're not under Satan's authority anymore at all. What are you? You're in the kingdom of light.
And what do you have there? In this kingdom of the son he loves, we have here redemption, forgiveness of sins. Redemption, well, that's the picture of bringing the people out of Egypt and back to the freedom of the promised land. We could say in whom we have freedom, freedom from the tyranny of Satan, freedom from the tyranny of despair, freedom from the tyranny of all the evil desires that we have, at least we move in that direction. We have redemption and we have forgiveness of sins. See, that's the war. And in this case, what's happening is this is the father fighting for us. Oh, not beating us up. He's beating up the serpent. But for us, it's just that we allow yourself to be rescued. And see, the serpent is saying, I don't know if I can trust that God guy. I mean, like, really? I don't understand him. Well, I can say as a guy who's a professional theologian taught at Western Seminary for four decades and more, I don't either at a lot of points. But here's what I do know. This God, King of the Universe, second person of the Trinity is willing to abandon all his perks and privileges of heaven, come to this earth and live under the most horrible circumstances, insulted by everybody, living as a political refugee in a horrible spot. Think of a Syrian refugee living in Germany, Turkey. When he went back to Nazareth, under cruelest of political oppression, poverty so savage that no person in the United States can experience that level of poverty. We just have too many things available to us. Can you imagine what he heard on the playground? Hey, hey, where's your daddy, boy? Where's your daddy? Bullying on the playground, poverty, went to Jerusalem, oh my gosh the incredible battles going on there. Ended up in a back room with the high priest soldiers where the high priest said, get him guys. I know what soldiers do when the boss says, get him. And it talks about them beating him. I know they did, but my guess is, I mean, this is Gary talking. I think he was sexually assaulted in that back room. That's what men do to men. And then he went to a cross. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? So that we can have freedom from the death-dealing, lying serpent. Remember Genesis 3.15? He will crush your head, serpent, and you will strike his heel. That's how he did it. Jesus took all the horrors of this world to fully embrace all of our sin and disease and shame and despair to bring us Forgiveness, freedom, hope, faithfulness. That's the war. Some of you don't follow Jesus yet. You can be rescued, just say it. That's all you need. Some of you do follow Jesus, but you're still, you're playing the Eve game. That's where you're in a community of spirit-filled believers and 
live in the freedom of forgiveness and hope. And then we go out and create communities characterized by justice and goodness and hope, love, faithfulness. See, that's spiritual warfare. That's the heart of it. That's the base biblical theology of how Satan works, hasn't changed. That's the base theology of how we work to use good to fight the evil so we can be a part of the kingdom of light that's in the process of redeeming this world. It's a great place to be. Thanks so much, Gary. As we prepare our hearts for communion, why don't you grab the bread, grab the cup, or whatever you have in front of you. And I want to read again Colossians 1, verse 21. It says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight. And that's what Gary was saying. The good news is, is that God has brought us back through the death and resurrection of his own son, Jesus. And like Gary was saying, if you're not following Jesus, why don't you do it right now as an act of faith to begin this new life with God? Uh, ask and invite Jesus Christ to bring you literally from death to life. And if you do that now and just say, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner and I know that you're a savior. Save me. Today could be the first day of your whole new life. I encourage you to do it now and, and make sure if you do it to please hit the prayer button. If you're watching on an online format, hit the prayer button on the side of your screen and we would love to hear more. We'd love to pray with you one-to-one -one even today. For the rest of us, we celebrate communion as a reminder of what God had already done for us in Jesus. We, this is our physical, tangible reminder of the grace of Jesus. And so we do this every week, but it is not just a routine for us. Every day and every week, we remember Jesus's body broken for us, that we would be set free. Jesus's blood shed for us that our sin would be forgiven and our life restored with God. In light of these realities, let's eat and drink together, remembering the goodness of Jesus.